0: The MZTV Museum of Television will present Forgotten Genius, the Boy Who Invented Electronic Television. It's a new exhibit curated by my guest, Phil Savanek. It's devoted to the story of a guy you've probably never heard of, Philo T. Farnsworth, the man who revolutionized television and changed the future of communications on Earth. And Phil... This is a guy whose name should be on every television, radio, satellite, cell phone. uh, Any communications device that we have should pay tribute in some way to this guy. And yet nobody really knows who he is. Why is that? Well, you're right. He is the most famous guy that nobody ever heard of. Mm
1: -hmm. And the most remarkable thing is he was the guy who came up with the idea for television. Everybody watches television and no one has any idea who invented it. (laughs) Uh, you know, there are, are a, a lot of people who are working on it in a lot of different countries, a lot of different systems. But this idea for television, the one that we had through the 20th century, uh, was devised by a 14-year-old. And the story of Philo T. Farnsworth is so remarkable because it's completely unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Here was a farm boy growing up in the Old West— his father drove a stagecoach. They traveled by covered wagon. He was born in a log cabin. The farm they worked on had no electricity, no. Uh, had no indoor plumbing. So he grew up without anything that the kids today grew up with. There was no telephone. There was no computers. There was no Internet. Nothing that we consider vital to life existed at all. He had, they did not own a radio or a telephone. He had heard of them. He knew they existed, but he had never actually used one. Or seen one, probably. Yeah. Now, um, Philo Farnsworth's big idea happened at the age of 14. He hadn't been to high school yet. He hadn't had any formal studies. But when he moved to this, this farm in Rigby, Idaho... In the barn was a trove of science fiction magazines, amazing stories, fantastic uh, events, whatever they were called, science inventors and electrical experimenters.
0: These are probably the same magazines that went on to feed the imaginations of people like Ray Bradbury and Forrest J. Ackerman who created science fiction as we know it. Well, they are exactly the same Mm -hmm. ones. So as about a 13-year-old,
1: he starts reading science fiction magazines now, downstairs in the bar is a broken Delco generator. And the repairman comes to fix it, and this kid just watches everything he does. And so, when it's done, he says, I don't think the repairman did it right. <laughs> and he says to his dad, could I... Re-? And he, he cleans all the parts, and he puts it together with a lighter oil. And, the gener- and suddenly, the generator works. He's making electricity, and he's generating electrons. And he becomes fascinated by electrons. Now, his day job on the farm is he plows a field. And I don't know if anybody listening were ever farmers. I certainly was not. But I was told it is the most boring job ever in the world. (laughs) Basically, he would get up at dawn and sit on a metal uh, seat behind a horse until the sun went down. And as we know, the best antidote for boredom is thinking. And in his mind was all this science fiction stuff. Now, one of the science fiction magazines, which we have a picture of at the MZ TV uh, display, shows their version of what Skype would be like. But from 1917, where you talked into a mirror where you saw the other person and it said television on it. Okay. Now, there was also a mechanical television process that they described in these magazines. And even at 13, he thought that's never going to work. nobody's ever going to want to sit next to a disc that spins at that many (laughs) revolutions per minute. It'll never work. There's got to be a better way to make pictures fly through the air. One day he's plowing the field, and he looks behind him at all the lines in the dirt, and he starts to see pictures in the lines. And it occurs to him, if he could train an electron to do what his horse does and go to the end of a row and turn around and come back, he could send pictures through the air electronically.
0: Hadn't been to high school yet. And, and this is the beginning of it. And I'm going to interrupt you there because we're going to tease this story out a little bit, uh, because it is fascinating. Uh, I'm speaking with Phil Savanek. He has curated a new exhibit at the MZTV Museum of Television. Uh, if you're in Toronto or going to visit here soon from wherever you're listening to this show, it's in Liberty Village on Jefferson Avenue. Uh, it, it easy to find. And the, the exhibit sounds fascinating. We'll tell you all about it. But I want to get to know Phil Savanek a little bit here. So I've read that you have said TV was my oldest and dearest friend and my most persuasive uh, influence and teacher. How so? Well, those of us who are part of the television generation
1: grew up with it. Yeah, It really was our oldest friend, our teacher. It certainly gave us guidance. It showed us what the world was supposed to be like, you know, completely unrealistic views. But nevertheless, we couldn't discern between what was news, what was entertainment, what was propaganda, what was advertising. We just took it all in. We were the television generation.
0: And you grew up in Los Angeles, too. So you were probably surrounded by it a little bit more than than maybe the rest of us were. You could see the actors on television. We could see them. They lived on our block. That's what I mean, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it, it, Los Angeles
1: is kind of a company town. Mm-hmm. You know, if you were in Detroit, they make cars. You know, in Los Angeles, they make movies and television. And, uh, you know, I grew up in Beverly Hills, and quite literally, movie stars lived on every block. Yeah. On Halloween, we'd go trick-or-treating. Jimmy Stewart
0: lived next door to Lucille Ball, who lived next door to Jack Benny. Yeah, and Jack, there's a story that, that I'd like you to tell about trick-or-treating at Jack Benny's house. Well, I was about
1: Seven and I was dressed as Santa Claus because mom had sewed the costume the Christmas before. And uh, we went to Jimmy Stewart's house first. They all, this was Killers Row for Halloween. And you know, they brought out a bowl and you picked what you want. As I recall that year, Lucy wasn't throwing a party. Instead, she had a bowl on the front porch that said, don't you dare ring this bell. (laughs) And then we rang Jack Benny's doorbell and he opened the door and I walked in and I said, trick or treat, and he was having a party and all George Burns was there. All the big stars from that era were there at his party. And I said, trick-or-treat, and he said, what's your trick? Well, because I was just like Santa Claus, I sang Jingle Bells. Uh, And he gave me a silver dollar. Wow, wow. Now, a silver dollar in 1957 was probably like 10 bucks. Yeah, yeah. It was a big deal. And on TV, he was the cheapest man in the world. So I remember walking out of his house thinking,
0: there's some gap here between the image and the reality here. That was the nicest man I ever met. <laughs> well, and back in those days, uh, people didn't have gates. They didn't have security, you no know, security cameras and stuff. You could walk up and knock on Jimmy Stewart's door, and he might answer. But the nice thing was that people
1: didn't. Now, at one point in time, the buses would come and they would let the people off and they would have lunch on their lawns. So Jimmy Stewart devised a system. So when Lucy moved next door, she said, Jimmy, what do you do about these people who have lunch on your lawn? He said, I have a perfect system. You wait till they set everything out and then you go in the back and you turn on
0: the sprinklers. (laughs) Always works. Uh, It's interesting to me that era in Los Angeles because uh, it's... Well before the turbulence of the '60s hit, well before the Manson murders, all that stuff that changed Los Angeles so much, uh, it, it seems like—and I know I'm naive a little bit here—but it seems like a, a much more innocent time. I mean, I know that John Barrymore and Peter Lorre and those guys would go on drinking binges that would that would kill an elephant, but you know, it seems to me like the idea of celebrity was a little different than it is now. Celebrity was the cultivation
1: of your image. Right. A lot of people behind you worked very hard to create your image, maintain your image. Stars, for example, did not go out in blue jeans. Right. When you were a star, you dressed like a star. Marilyn Monroe would say it took her an hour to be Marilyn Monroe.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Before she could even walk out the door. So it was a different era. There was no internet. There was no social media all of those stars had their own peccadilloes, their own scandals, their own desires, their own lives. But we didn't know about it. And in a certain manner, it didn't matter. If Rock Hudson and Doris Day were this fabulous screen couple, did we really care? Now, in time, of course, we found out that was just a role he was playing. But at the time, yes, we were more innocent, and it didn't
0: really matter. It's funny, I read somewhere that if you wrote a letter to Jimmy Stewart, I think the address was like 99, I can't remember, It was P.O. Box 99, uh, Los Angeles, California, or Beverly Hills, California, uh, that he would write back. So I thought, well, what the hell, let's see what happens. And I wrote him a letter about It's a Wonderful Life, and I waited, you know, whatever, checked the mail every day. For a month, a month later, almost to the day, a letter arrived, now, typewritten and signed, and, you know, it it was probably strictly done by a secretary or something, but uh, I thought that was pretty cool. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, We were just talking about the innocence uh, of Los Angeles in those days. Um,
1: I think the whole world, it was a more innocent time. Yeah. Uh, And the entertainment business in those days was three networks, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So what we saw and what we heard was very carefully curated. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, with hundreds of channels, fact has become opinion. Yeah, uh, Drama has become promotion. And
0: almost everything is propaganda. Well, it, it's interesting, too. There's just so much now. I've recently read that if you were to try and watch all the new shows on Netflix, it would take you— I think six and a half months of binging seven hours a day, seven days a week to do it all. They've, there's 700 new shows or something. I mean, it's a ridiculous amount of of uh, product. And what I find interesting when you talk about the three-network system is if you were on a big hit show, that meant virtually everyone in the country knew who you were. You know, if you were Columbo, if you were Peter Falk playing Columbo – everyone knew who you were. If you were Buddy Epson on the Beverly Hillbillies as Jed Clampett, everybody knew who you were just because of the saturation. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, one more story about growing up in Beverly Hills is
1: uh, Doris Day lived nearby and she would ride her bicycle to the market. She had a little basket in front and load up with her groceries and ride back. And as a kid, if you were riding your bicycle and you saw her, you'd ring your bell, she'd ring her bell right back. (laughs) So it it was a different time. She didn't worry somebody was going to stalk her or kill her yep. or those things
0: all came later. She was just the, that dog lady who lived down the street. I'm in conversation with Phil Sivanek. He is the curator of the MZTV Museum of Television exhibit about a guy you've never heard about but you're going to learn all about today, Philo T. Farnsworth. Stay with us. My guest in studio is Phil Savinak. He has curated a fascinating exhibit at the MZTV Museum of Television. It's called Forgotten Genius, The Boy Who Invented Electronic Television. It's all about Philo T. Farnsworth. Here's a guy that we don't know anything about. You gave us a bit of a background, a farm boy, never been to school, but just had an innate genius when it came to all things electronic. He was a, a a prodigy of sorts, with as he could take apart anything, put it all back together again. And you know, while he's out plowing the fields, he he says, "Oh, you know what? I've got I've got this theory about how we could send pictures flying through the air," inspired by the designs that he was making in the fields. Uh, so let's pick up Philo. We'll get to know a bit more about you, but let's pick this up. We were talking in the last segment about. Hundreds of channels. There's too much going on now on television. Uh, I don't know if it's too much, but there's a lot going on in television. Way too many channels. And you wanted to pick up the story there. Well, you know, the
1: the famous line is there's a hundred channels and nothing on. Uh, But with all of the reliance on television, all of the penetration of television into our culture, into our society, it really all began with a single line that was created by a 21-year-old. So... The fact is everybody watches television, but if
0: you ask them who invented it, nobody's going to have the answer. And so, and and this guy, I mean, he struggled in obscurity for much of his life. He's he's gotten some recognition now. How did you find out about him? Well, uh, my career was spent making television shows, and many
1: of them were on the history of television. And In truth, I loved watching TV as a kid. And when I got into my career, I got to watch the shows I had loved as a kid. But just find a way of reassembling them so that it told a story, it made a point, it it gave them a perspective. Or sometimes we were doing somebody's anniversary and we were just glorifying the old days. But I spent a lot of time working on television, the history of television as a documentarian. And then the obvious question comes up well, who invented this thing? I owe him everything. (laughs) And uh, this name Philo Farnsworth appeared. And as I began to look into the story, this this implausible story of a farm boy who at 14 comes up with the idea for electronic television just began to fascinate me. And I thought, well, how do I learn more? Or how do I? So his wife had written an uh, autobiography and there was a Biography about him, so I began to read a little bit about him. But these were the days before the internet, Mm -hmm. so information was kind of hard to come by. And then, in about 2003, I was doing the clips for the Emmy Awards, and it was the 75th anniversary of the of the invention, and they were going to mention it, you know, just as a line. Right. And I said, you know, Philo Farnsworth's widow is still alive; she's 94. She lives in, in Salt Lake City. Why don't we invite her? Yeah, And she'll stand up and she'll wave. When her husband pointed a camera at a human for the first time, it was her. She's the first person ever televised. Why don't we have her on the show? Wow. And they invited her. And in all honesty, I stalked her.
0: <laughs> but it wasn't that hard because how many
1: women show up at the Emmys in a wheelchair? That's
0: right. Yeah. All right. yeah. Easy to find. So
1: I finally found her down by the ladies' room. And... I got down on a knee and I just had the best time and I called her the mother of television and I thanked her and I gave her one of my little pins and we laughed and then stars started coming out of the bathroom. Yeah. Now I don't know that many stars on a first-name basis, but that night I decided, oh, yeah. you want to come over and meet the mother of television? <laughs> now her husband really was the father because he invented it, but she was with him in the lab that day. She drew the diagram, she did the spot welding, she's the mother of television. Well. Glenn Close came out of the ladies room. So I said, Glenn, you want to meet the mother of television? <laughs> I don't know her from Adam, yeah, but yeah. What? She got down on a knee and kissed Mrs. Farnsworth's uh, hand. Wow. And she said, without you, none of us would have had a career. And after she left, the the lady who was wheeling her said to Pem, weren't you embarrassed?
0: And she said, oh no, not a bit. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. It was her moment. Yeah. It, uh, and, and, and a long delayed one, I would imagine. Yeah. So,
1: you know, we had an evening together. I had a wonderful time. I felt, well, i would gotten to meet a, an authentic historical figure, and I did a little something to make her life a little brighter. Yeah, yeah. That was, I thought, the end of my involvement with this. Then the Internet came around, and there was a thing called eBay. And I saw on eBay someone was selling one of Dr. Farnsworth's experimental tubes. So I wrote the guy, and I said, for you to have this, you have to be a son. And he Uh. said, I am. (laughs) So I explained who I was, and he said, oh, we know who you are. Mom has a picture of you together at the Emmy. She had a great time. And we began conversations that ultimately led to them deciding I should be the one to get them a museum exhibit, to get them a movie, to get the artifacts, to preserve them, to protect them. And over the course of a few years, I was able
0: to purchase the contents of Philo Farnsworth's archive. And a lot of that people will be able to see at the MZTV Museum of Television uh, in Liberty Village in Toronto. It's called Forgotten Genius, the Boy Who Invented Electronic Television. Well, the the artifacts that I brought here to the show in Toronto are the
1: holiest relics of television. Mm -hmm. They include the first television camera ever made. It also includes the first television camera that worked. Right. Because the first one didn't (laughs) quite work. And in truth, the only reason it exists is it didn't work. Because the second one, which did work, blew up. And it blew (laughs) up his whole lab. He had to start over. (laughs) But the first one is here. First television camera that worked is here. His logbooks, day by day, his journals of the invention. And we have it open to September 7th, 1927. And there in his handwriting, it says, the received line picture was evident this time. Ah. He had just invented television wow. at 21 years old.
0: At 21. And he he died in 1971, right? So he lived a great deal longer than that, it, essentially living in obscurity. Well, he
1: was a inveterate, inveterate mm-hmm. inventor. He never stopped. He had 160 patents. Television was just one of them. Yeah. Or, the, or the mechanisms for television, different parts of it. So basically, he never stopped thinking. He never stopped inventing. And I'll tell you a little later, his last idea was actually better than television.
0: <laughs> wow. Um, we'll, we'll get to that. That's a great tease to, uh, to keep people interested. Um, we've got about a minute left. Tell me in a minute about your – I think your first job in television was working for – uh, Elvis Presley on one of the Elvis Presley in concert Actually, movies. Actually, my right? first job in television was working for the Smothers Brothers. Was it? Making yes. little films
1: for their show. My first movie was the last Elvis Presley right. movie. Right, And I was brought in to dig up stills and old newsreels and film clips to sort of augment the concert footage. Yeah. So from very, I was 20, from very early I was brought in to essentially
0: watch television and find the good parts. And which is what you continue to do, putting together a uh, exhibit at the MZ MZ TV Museum of Television called Forgotten Genius, The Boy Who Invented Electronic Television. It's all about Philo T. Farnsworth. We're teasing that story out uh, over each of the segments here because it really is fascinating. And uh, I want people to get to know Philo T. Farnsworth. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. Phil Savanek is my uh, guest in studio today. He has curated a fascinating exhibit at the MZTV Museum of Television in Toronto. It's called Forgotten Genius, The Boy Who Invented Electronic Television. And it's all about Philo T. Farnsworth. Now, we have told you this story from farm boy to inventor of television at age 21 uh, without a great deal of education, right? He had two years of high school and two years of college. That's it. And then his father died, and he's 18 years old, and
1: he figured, well, I I guess if I have to support the whole family, I might as well just invent television. (laughs) Which is essentially what he did. And what was the date that you told me? Well, 1927 was the first first line that was broadcast, and, and that proved that his system worked. He came up with the idea at 14 while plowing a field. He drew the first picture of a television camera at 15 for his teacher in high school. A part of the plow he was riding is in the MZ TV Museum. Wow. A, a part of the drawing that he did for the teacher is in the MZ wow. TV Museum. The first tubes are there. His notebooks are there. His personal television set is there. And it, well, for those of you who don't know, the MZ TV Museum in Toronto is the finest collection of televisions anywhere in the mm-hmm. world. It is world class, the best. So when we went to tell the story of this teenager who invented television, we wanted it. That was the place for it. Yeah. Toronto is the place for it, because Moses Nymer's museum is indeed unique,
0: and uh, and and extraordinary. And will people from this show is heard all, all across the country? Will people be able to see this? Will there be elements of it online? Is there a way that if you're not in Toronto, that you can sort of enjoy the exhibit, Actually, or will it tour? Actually, yes, because we put an entire virtual
1: tour of it on the Internet. There we go. How do people find that? There are two ways. One is if they download the MZTV app, then that will link to it. And the other is we have a website, one word, The History of TV. And right there on the front page, it says virtual tour of the Philo Farnsworth exhibit. Now, what's nice about that is it expands upon what's even in the exhibit. Mm -hmm. There are more letters, there are more photographs, there are more videos, because, you know, uh, we've sort of built this exhibit on five levels. You can go there and look at the actual artifacts. You can read about it. I've done an audio tour. We have photographs and we have videos. Mm -hmm. So the story is sort of told on five levels. It takes... An hour, a couple of hours yeah. to really look at everything. So we've posted it all on the internet. So yes, wherever you are, you can learn the story and enjoy the story
0: of this forgotten genius, the teenager who invented television. That will keep our listeners in the east and the west and everywhere in between happy. They all get a chance to look at it. So, was he ever able to capitalize on this invention? All right. In 1927,
1: he gets it to work, and um, they he files patents. And there are more advances in 28 and 29. In, 19, uh, in 1930, his main rival is RCA. They don't have a working television system. So they offer to buy his system for $100,000 US dollars, and he will come to work for RCA, and they'll own his patents. Right.
0: And he rightfully says, I don't think so. Yeah. I own it. I Even though $100,000 was in life-changing money. I mean, this this at that moment in time it would be like someone offering you 10 million dollars today and he turned it down mm-hmm.
1: because i own it i will get a royalty on every single television set ever made yeah. that's a better deal so rca since they couldn't buy it they stole it they sent their head engineer technician a, a, a innovator and a scientist of his own named vladimir's work and to san francisco to the farnsworth lab and he literally just knocked at the door <laughs> they opened the door And he gave them a fabulous pitch of which only one word was a lie. He said, "Uh, my name is Vladimir Zwarkin. I am the head scientist at Westinghouse, not RCA. So Westinghouse made fridges and And stoves. And he said, we hear you've been having great success with the phosphorescent coating of your cathode ray tube. And we might want to license your product. Mm. Can you show me how it works? Farnsworth calls his investors. He says, I got the guy from Westinghouse here. They want to license it. Should I show it to him? Absolutely. So he builds a camera. He builds a monitor. He shows Zwarkin how the system works. Zwarkin says, this is really interesting. Goes back to his hotel and writes a 700-word telegram stealing the idea. Wow. By the time his train gets back east, they've already rebuilt Farnsworth's lab and rebuilt his tube so they can backwards engineer it.
0: And and were there repercussions to that? Was there blowback? What happens in a situation like that? Well, the major repercussion was uh, they filed their own patents.
1: Right. So Farnsworth went to the patent office and said, you know, they're interfering with our patents. You've got to decide on this. And a trial began. Trial lasted a couple of years. So there is no television. There are only lawyer's fees for those years. <laughs> OK. In the end, and this is a beautiful part of the story, His high school teacher finds out his favorite student's in trouble. And he shows up with the drawing the kid had done in 1922. Wow. So the judge knows, yeah, not only could a 21-year-old invent television, he actually had the whole idea in place at 15, and he wins. There is nothing in the RCA system they didn't steal from his. He will get a royalty on every single television. So this is the place for the happy ending, if we had one. Yeah, yeah problem was a little thing called World War II. Right. So Farnsworth collects royalties for one year, and of course he puts all the money back into technology because this is yep. the beginning. Yeah. By 1939, the world is at war. By 1940, there are no foreign markets. By 41, they close all television for war industries, radar, sonar, night right. vision, all that. There's no television. The patents he filed in 28 and 30, they only get 17 years, are now expiring. So by the time we get television after the war,
0: anybody can use his technology without paying him. Wow. We're talking about Philo T. Farnsworth. Uh, this is a true story that sounds like it's a a, a fictional, it sounds like it should be a movie, Uh, The Man Who Invented Electronic Television. If you want to find out more about him, go to the MZTV Museum of Television in Toronto at Liberty Village, uh, and you can see an exhibit called Forgotten Genius, The Boy Who Invented Electronic Television, curated by my guest, Phil Savinick. Or you can go online and have a look at the virtual tour, and you can read the letters, and you can see the pictures and the whole thing. So no matter where you are in the country, uh, you'll be able to enjoy Uh, this exhibit. This is an insane story. This is such a wild story with twists and turns. It almost sounds made up.
1: Well, when there was no television in America, he took his product to Europe. He took it to England. They licensed it, but not for TV. They wanted it for radar because they knew that the Nazi bombs were coming. Yeah, yeah. And the cathode ray tube had that latent image that they could track it. So they licensed the system. Then he took the system to Germany and they broadcast the 1936 Olympics with it. But no TV in America. Right. They were still held up. We need a National Association of Broadcasters and a common right. signal and manufacturing standards. They just held him up. They just starved him out. Now, during the war, he began – now, RCA announces they've invented television in 1939 at the World's Fair as a surprise. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know
0: it's coming. And he's nowhere mentioned in the invention of television. And, and this is where the erasure of his name begins probably. One of the major erasers of his name, ironically, is, was the Encyclopedia
1: Britannica. Apparently, they printed press releases, and they printed RCA's press release. So history became Vladimir and invented television. Wow. Wow. It, 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 it unnerved the family to no end. Yeah. They spent countless mo- years trying to just say,
0: here's the real story. Just reprint in your next edit. Never happened. Wow. And and it, it's funny because as we set off the, the top of the show, people don't know who Philo T. Farnsworth is. Uh, if nothing else, it's an amazing name. Philo T. Farnsworth is the name of, of a hero in a film somewhere. Well, his father was also
1: Philo T. Farnsworth, yep. and he had gone to Utah with Joseph Smith and Brigham Young in what? stagecoaches and founded the Mormon religion there uh, about a, two centuries ago. So the Farnsworths, there are literally thousands of them. So uh, it's a a very well-known family. But
0: Philo Farnsworths' family himself, he had
1: uh, uh, three sons. Right.
0: Uh, When we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with my guest, Phil Savanek. Uh, We're talking about an exhibit that's at the MZTV or MZ, as you say. In Canada, we say Z. No, we say Z here. I was raised by American parents, and so I say Z. Uh, well, I am believe I'm a
1: Canadian Yeah, today. you are,
0: MZ. So MZ TV Museum of Television, uh, it's called Forgotten Genius, the Boy Who Invented Electronic Television, uh, and you can see it there in Liberty Village if you happen to be in Toronto, or you can skip on over to the internet and see uh, the entire tour virtually there. Uh, it's fantastic stuff. Stay with us. There's more about Philo T. Farnsworth when we come back. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. The MZTV Museum of Television will present Forgotten Genius, the boy who presented electronic television. Uh, From now until the new year, you have a chance to see the story of Philo T. Farnsworth, the man who invented and revolutionized television uh, and really changed the future of communications on Earth. Uh, It was curated by my guest today, Phil Savanek, and we've talked about Philo. We've gotten him up to the point where... The patents have expired. He's 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 trying to make a go of this, but it, he's being erased from history. He's being erased from the from the history of television. Well, one of the nice things about having the space at
1: the at the MZTV Museum is we tell the story of the invention of television. We tell the story of his youth, but we also go beyond that. Yeah. So what happens to him after this? Well. When he realizes that his patents are going to expire and he's not going to be part of the development of his beloved television, he has a massive nervous breakdown. Right. And he moves to Maine and he decides he's going to dig a pond and build an earthen dam and he can uh, fish for trout in the summer and he can skate on it in the winter. He wants nothing to do with electronics or businesses. He wants to dig in the dirt like that little boy who used to be in the field. And while he's digging in the dirt, he comes up with an idea that's better than television. And it has to do with the fact that we had exploded the H-bomb, which was basically the power of the sun. And he reads about it and he realizes we don't have to have it explode. We could do fusion instead of fission. We could have a constantly generating source of clean, unlimited energy for the masses. With the power of the H-bomb, You know, associated with it. And he envisions a fuser in every house and every car. Now, he goes beyond it to envision fusers as fuels for rocket ships that will colonize other planets. The hydrogen being the source of the energy for the rockets, the oxygen being the source of the energy for the humans. Together, that makes water.
0: Yeah, and and this is still like the musings of—he's an older man now— but the, of the young boy that read those science fiction magazines Something growing about up. about when he works in dirt. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. Uh, his son would tell me the stories about their mother
1: would read the science fiction magazines out loud all night. Wow. And then one day he said, we don't have to do this anymore. And she said, why? He said, because I'm living science fiction. <laughs> I don't need to read it. Wow. So his fusers he felt were powerful enough. He could change weather patterns. He could cure diseases. He could power rocket ships. Um... So his ideas went way beyond television. In 1966, he got it to work. He created more energy than it took to to fuel it. Yeah. It was minor. It was little. But it was actually a successful test. Right. Uh, at that time, his uh, experiments were being funded by Inter- uh, it International Telephone and Telegraph. They really had no interest in doing anything free, unlimited, or clean for the masses. They (laughs) wanted to militarize it. They wanted to monetize it. He had lost his first big idea. He wasn't going to lose control of this one. He also didn't really like the idea of them having H-bomb technology in any form. He wanted to control this. And when he lost that control, he dismantled his lab, and he took the books home and scattered them around. They were never going to have it. Now, we found a book. There was always a story. He had kept the key, the right. secret to how all these... Yeah, yeah. And we found it. And we opened it up, and it was this moment. But the only sentence in the book was on page 7. And it said, My husband felt his last gift... That, that the world's humanity was not... Oh, my husband said, The world humanity was not worthy of his last gift, and may never be, and
0: he instructed me to destroy the first six pages. Wow wow, this is honestly a movie. Why has no one made this movie? No one has made the movie... Well, there was a
1: Hollywood movie that was written Mm -hmm. by a very famous writer named Aaron Sorkin. Yeah, And it was truly terrible because it (laughs) missed the fact that this is the story of a teenage boy and a teenage girl finding romance on this era of discovery and they're on the cutting edge. He wrote it as a technical piece about the power of David Sarnoff from RCA right. and the lone inventor Philo Farnsworth. And it was all made about conversations between the two which never existed because mm-hmm. they never met. Yeah. So it really was about Titans and men and power. And that's not the story. The story is this amazing kid who has ideas out of nowhere that changed the world. And the real reason I, I put the display together and I bought all the artifacts and I contacted MZTV about doing an exhibit is my dream is some 14-year-old will walk into that room and hear this story about this teenager and think, you know what, I have a crazy idea, and maybe it isn't so crazy. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I can make this thing and manifest it in the real world. Maybe I can make the world better with my idea. If that's what Philo Farnsworth's story
0: means, then that what makes this all worthwhile. You can see the exhibit at the MZTV Museum of Television in Liberty Village uh, in Toronto or online. There are virtual tours that you can take. It's called Forgotten Genius, the Boy Who Invented Electronic Television. And I'm in conversation with Phil Savanek, who is the person who has uh, brought this story to light, who has spent, it seems like a couple of decades, Probably now collecting the artifacts that you'll be able to see about the man who revolutionized television and really changed the future of communications. Without him, uh, it would be a different world. Well, as I I see we're getting close to the
1: end of our show, I'm going to promise you a happy ending. Okay. I mean, here we have this boy genius, the forgotten genius that nobody knows about, and he invents television and he's screwed out of his royalties and his future. I can't leave you with that story. Okay. You have to have a happy ending. Okay, give me the happy ending. The happy ending is, Philo Farnsworth did not like what they did to his invention. He felt if everyone around the world could see each other, they'd know we're all alike and there would be no more war. Right. Co- obviously, that's not what happened. Yeah. What he saw were beer commercials and wrestling and, and westerns. And he didn't let his children watch television. He felt there was nothing that in on television that should be in their intellectual diet. So they would go to school on Monday and the kids would say, hey, did you see Ed Sullivan or they say, no, we're not allowed to watch TV. Why, are you being punished? No, Dad invented it. (laughs) Finally, July 20th, 1969, he turns to his wife and he says, okay, you can turn the damn thing on. And they turn on the television and the first thing they see, live television pictures from the moon. And she turns to him and she says, so Phil, was it all worth it? And he says... You know, I think so. But up to this moment, I really wasn't too sure.
0: That's amazing. Uh, Well, that that segues nicely into a story that I wanted to get from you. We are in just the last few minutes of my conversation with Phil Savanek. You met Neil Armstrong, who would have been the subject of of that television broadcast that they turned on as he was the first man on the moon. So you met him. Tell me that story. I will tell you the story. If it runs too long,
1: we can do it another week or you can cut it. Uh, I worked for an American comedian named Bob Hope. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were doing a show that was sort of a tribute to the 25th anniversary of NASA. And one night, Bob says, you know, it'd be great to have Neil on the show. I'll just call him. And he looks at his Rolodex. He calls Neil Armstrong. He says, Neil, will you come and be on the show? Neil Armstrong says, yes. Well, so the day of the show, Neil Armstrong being a good military man, he arrives several hours early. (laughs) And he's sitting in the audience alone. So I quickly ran out to a bookstore and bought the first book I could find with a picture of him in it, ran back to NBC and he's still alone in the audience. So I sat down next to him and I said, would it be okay if I asked you a couple of questions? I'm sure everybody's asked you. And he said, of course. So I said, what was it like to walk on the moon? And he said, well, it was just like walking on, the, uh, on a sandy beach near the shore where your foot would sink down about a quarter of an inch in a very fine powder. He said, the biggest difference is uh, I only weighed one-fifth of what I weighed on earth. So I was only about 35 pounds. <laughs> so they, were always, they didn't let me do too much because they were always afraid if I fell down, I might break something in the suit or not right. be able to get up. So he said, we weren't, really weren't allowed to do that much. Then I said, well, what was it like to be weightless? And he said, well, we would practice by uh, skin diving in a pool with enough weight that we wouldn't float up and we wouldn't float down. Right. He said the difference in space was you could be standing one direction, somebody else exactly the opposite direction, even sideways. And you'd know the other guy was wrong, but you weren't right because <laughs> there was no frame of reference. Right. And then the third question I asked him was, would you sign my picture? And to which he said no. And I said, with all due respect, sir, how come? He said, it isn't me. He said, that's Buzz. I took the picture, but it isn't me. (laughs) So I looked, I thought quickly, and I looked at the picture, and there reflected in the visor was Neil taking the picture. And I said, well, there you are taking the picture. He said, okay, I'll sign it for you. And afterwards, I said to him, how come you were so reticent about signing? And he said, I once had dinner with Charles Lindbergh right after I came back. And I said to Charles Lindbergh, is there anything I should know about fame? And Lindbergh said, never look anyone in the eye and never sign an autograph. And Neil said, and at that time, that was my job in in government, was I would go every morning and sign autographs to send all over the world. So he said, the day my contract was up, I don't sign, I never signed another autograph, but I'll sign yours. Wow. And then, of course, there was a fourth question. Yes.
0: Where'd you go to the bathroom? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what did you say to that? Right in our suit. Really?
1: That's why they ate Tang and and this processed food, because there was nothing solid in anything they ate. Right. The one thing he said that was NASA's biggest secret was that generally one out of three astronauts, uh, something in their inner ear did not adjust properly, and they were airsick the entire flight. So he said, we're military men. Uh, You know, a little airsickness isn't going to stop us. But he said it did make it rather unpleasant because it was kind of like
0: you're spending a week in a bathroom. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because I have seen the movie First Man, which is about the uh, Apollo 11 flight. And... The sense of claustrophobia, the sense of, of how precise they had to be about every single movement that they made. The, the way that they are crammed into this little capsule on top of a giant rocket and the anxiety that you must feel when you're there and you don't know what's about to happen is really brilliantly performed in that film. Now, I
1: also asked Neil how come he knew the picture wasn't his so of him yeah. so fast. He said we had one color camera on the moon. I took several hundred pictures
0: and then I gave it to Buzz. Guess how many pictures Buzz took of me? (laughs) Zero. Yeah, zero. <laughs> I've been in conversation with Phil Savinick. He is the curator of the uh, exhibit "Forgotten Genius: The Boy Who Invented Electronic Television" at the MZTV Museum of Television in Liberty Village in Toronto. Uh, if you're not in Toronto, though, don't fear. You can see this thing online. Uh, you get a virtual tour. You can stop. You can read all the stuff. It's it will be like being there. And what's the uh, URL for that again? Uh, You can go to the MZTV app that you can get at the App Store or
1: if you go to thehistoryoftv.com, there's a virtual tour with films, with photos, with stories, with the artifacts, and you can experience the invention of television. So for all of those of you who really love television, the MZ TV is a uh, the MZ TV Museum is a unique place. There are the rarest televisions in the world there. There is no one else in the world, there is no place else in the world where these things exist. There is the first camera, uh, the first television set from the 1939 World's Fair, which they had to make out of Lucite because people thought it was a fake and there were really right. little people uh. dancing inside <laughs> or something. And that, and he also has Felix the Cat, who was the first character on television okay. because the lights were so hot. If it had been a human, they would have melted. <laughs> so he picked a puppet. And now we have added the very first television camera and the journals. And they did a beautiful thing at MZTV. Um, the curators, uh, Daryl and Carolyn, they, I, I brought in Dr. Farnsworth's actual television set that he owned, and they fixed it and repaired it to working order, and we run the moon landing on it. Oh, maybe. It's the set that
0: he watched the moon landing. It was the happy ending for him. Phil, thank you very much. What a pleasure to speak to you. Uh, thanks to you for listening, and my thanks to Andre on the board. We'll talk again next week.